Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is Sunday for our group learning program where we study a chapter in this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. This week, we're in chapter 20, which is titled Animal to Human, The Evolution of Our Consciousness. In this chapter, I help you understand how human existence is oftentimes as a result of rebirth out of the animal realm. So now that you're in this human realm, you have the opportunity to attain enlightenment. But the challenge that we all face is that our consciousness has been conditioned by many, many, many rebirths in the animal realm, along with most likely rebirths in other realms as well. So the human mind is holding on to various conditioning from the animal realm. And by understanding that and seeing it very clearly, it can really help you to move the mind closer and closer to enlightenment as you shed these animal instincts that are present in the human mind. Because this path to enlightenment, aside from everything else that we're doing in this path, it's essentially becoming more and more human. It's training the mind to shed off these animal instincts and move closer and closer to being a true human being where you can function peacefully and harmoniously with all beings, having no anger, no frustration, no irritation, no guilt or shame, no fears, no boredom, loneliness, resentment, jealousy, or shyness, or any of these other discontent feelings that we are plagued with as an unenlightened human being and as we're plagued with as a animal and in these other realms as well but in this existence as a human being we can evolve our consciousness or we can cultivate it we can develop our consciousness to move closer and closer to this peaceful calm serene and content mind with joy or this enlightened mental state that the buddha shares with us so learning about this evolution of our consciousness from animal to human can really help to clarify a lot of things as you embark and as you progress on this journey to enlightenment. So thank you all for joining today's class. As we go, we'll have the opportunity for you to ask questions. We have moderators who will be able to see your questions in Facebook, YouTube, and Zoom. And in Zoom, you'll be able to raise your hand electronically to ask any questions that you might have. But let's go ahead and move right into what it is that I prepared to discuss with you guys today, which is helping you to see more clearly how the mind is moving from these animal consciousness to the human consciousness. We're also going to be talking about the realms of existence in today's class because this is a topic that is typically best 
discussed later in your practice. So if you remember from early on in the group learning program, as we were going through all the preliminary learning and making our way through chapter four, five, six, seven, et cetera, when there was questions about the cycle of rebirth that came up, I would answer it to a certain degree, but then I would say, let's set that to the side. We're going to get to it towards the end of this program. Well, we're at that opportunity right now. This is where we're going to pull back the covers on the cycle of rebirth and really dive into it so that you can see it more and more clearly. And then I imagine by the time we finish with today's talk, you'll still have some questions. You'll still have some things that you would like to discuss regarding the cycle of rebirth. It's kind of not really possible to have just one discussion about any topic related to the Buddhist teachings and students just get it right away. That's kind of rare. So as we go today, as we talk, be sure to ask questions, be sure to think over what it is that I'm sharing with you. And as I always talk with you, don't ever believe anything I say, but instead learn, reflect and practice so that you can see the truth for yourself. So to understand the evolution of our consciousness from animal to human, it's first important to understand the primary problems that the mind has in the unenlightened state, because the more you understand the problems with the unenlightened mind, you will be able to see those same qualities in animals. If you've spent any amount of time around animals or researching animals or looking at documentaries about animals, you will understand as you learn about the problems in the human unenlightened mind, then you will see those same qualities in animals consciousness. And again, that will really help you to shed those and move towards this more human existence. So as we discussed in chapter eight, and as we've discussed in other parts of this program, the three problems that the Buddha discovered that are describing the unenlightened mind at a high level are craving, anger, and ignorance. We refer to these as the three poisons or the three unwholesome roots or the three fires. Each one of these have specific aspects of them that makes the mind experience things in a certain way and we react to things rather than responding to them. We also call this greed, hatred, and delusion. I like to use for this last poison of ignorance or delusion, I like to use the unknowing of true reality because this word ignorance, while it's used in Buddhist communities all throughout the world, it's kind of more of a derogatory term and an enlightened being wouldn't call somebody ignorant or, you know, you have ignorance. It's more of the unknowing of true reality. This is the main reason why the mind stays in the unenlightened state is because of this ignorance or this delusion or this confusion or this unknowing of true reality. The unenlightened mind doesn't understand that it's causing its own discontentedness. It doesn't understand the wisdom of these teachings. It doesn't understand the moral conduct that it's using and how that unwholesome moral conduct causes problems in the world and those problems just return to you. The mind that is ignorant or has delusion or confusion or unknowing of true reality, it doesn't understand this anger or this hatred and how by the mind functioning with that and putting that out in the world, it's going to come back to you. 
the mind that has this ignorance or delusion, it doesn't understand that mental discipline or being able to control your mind is all within you. And you have the ability to do it. You just have to learn how to train the mind so that then you can control it or have this mental discipline. So when you look at the Buddhist teachings in detail, specifically what we call dependent origination, but also a lot of his other teachings, you will see him talking about how this is the primary problem of why a being stays in the unenlightened state is because of this ignorance, delusion, confusion, unknowing of true reality. And the antidote to that is wisdom. The wisdom is acquired through not believing his teachings, but learning them, reflecting on them, and then practicing to see the truth for yourself. And by doing that, when you see the truth and you see it independently, maybe your teacher explains it to you. Maybe you're guided to investigate it. But then when you see it on an independent basis, then you see the truth for yourself and that helps the mind to acquire wisdom. And that wisdom, the mind starts functioning through this wisdom differently than it did in the unenlightened state. So in the past, when someone was off this path, we might have went around blaming other people for our anger, our frustration, or anything else that's going on in our life. We might have blamed others. But as you gain the wisdom of this path, specifically the natural law of gamma, as you start to understand craving, desire, attachment, that ignorance is eradicated through wisdom. And you start seeing the truth for yourself that all those discontent feelings you've experienced your whole life are actually being caused by the mind itself. And when you start seeing this very clearly through the natural law of gamma, then you eradicate more and more of this ignorance or delusion or confusion or unknowing of true reality because you now have acquired wisdom and the mind starts functioning and operating in the world very differently than it did when it was off this path. So this ignorance that the unenlightened mind is plagued by, not only are we plagued by that in the human state, but we're also plagued by that in the animal existences. So in the human existence, we can actually eradicate this ignorance. We can acquire wisdom and improve the condition of the mind to then function in the world very differently. We can evolve where animals only have a limited capacity to be able to do that. They can evolve. That's why some animals have been domesticated. They've gone from being wild to being domesticated, but they can't evolve all the way to enlightenment in the animal realm. And we're going to talk about this more when we progress in today's class. But this is the primary problem that the Buddha discovered, and it's through his teachings that you will be able to eradicate this by seeing the truth for yourself and acquiring this wisdom. One of the first things you acquire wisdom about is the three universal truths, being able to see that truth for yourself, impermanence, discontentedness, and non-self, or the universal truth of non-self. As you learn these three universal truths, you don't believe them, but instead you look at them, you reflect on them, you practice, and you see the truth for yourself. Then you start moving into understanding how craving, desire, attachment is what's causing the mind to be discontent. So when you experience any kind of happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria, this is all being caused because the mind has this 
mental longing with a strong eagerness. The mind is yearning for something. The mind wants something. The mind expects something. And when it gets what it wants, it experiences these pleasant feelings. It's happy. It's excited. It's elated. But because it's basing its inner feelings on some impermanent condition, that happiness, excitement, elation is only temporary. Because you got a new job, you get happy, right? That's an impermanent condition. Eventually, as you show up to work each day and it's a bit challenging, then the mind isn't so happy anymore with this new job. Or you got a new car and you get happy, you get excited, you get elated. But eventually the car starts to age and now the mind isn't happy with that car anymore. It's only temporary because it's based its inner feelings on this impermanent condition. Or you get a new relationship, maybe a boyfriend, a girlfriend, or a friend that you meet. You get really thrilled with this new person. You put all this time, effort, and energy into spending time with this person. You get really excited. You get really happy. But then as the relationship goes on, you start to not have those same feelings anymore. That the happiness, excitement, and elation starts to fade because you've based that happiness on this impermanent condition of a new friend, right? So this craving, the mind just keeps wanting more and more and more. It's never content with just being satisfied with what is because it keeps chasing those pleasant feelings. It keeps wanting more and more of those pleasant feelings, almost like a drug. And if it's chasing after these pleasant feelings and it doesn't get what it wants, if it doesn't get the objects of its affection, then it experiences painful feelings, sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, maybe guilt, shame, fear, other things like this. Or it can experience boredom, loneliness, shyness, resentment, jealousy, all these other discontent feelings can come into the mind because the mind is longing or yearning for something. And when you discover this through the wisdom of the Buddhist teachings, then you can apply the remedy to eliminate craving. Because once the mind gets what it wants and it experiences those pleasant feelings, while that kind of reinforces to the mind that it was on the right path, it doesn't realize three months later when this job no longer is enjoyable for you or this relationship is no longer enjoyable for you, it doesn't look at the problem back from three months ago that you were actually chasing after this temporary condition and that's what the actual cause of the problem is. It doesn't realize that because it's three months down the road and it just starts feeling negative about this relationship or this job. But when you start understanding what the mind's doing and you can restrain it, from chasing after the objects of its affection through training with all the Buddhist teachings, then you can see that the mind is actually causing its own problems. And if it doesn't get the objects of its affection, it will oftentimes experience anger and get very hostile and aggressive and kind of push people away and maybe even try to control the situation and try to make the situation something that's pleasing for you because this disagreeable situation hasn't met with your expectations. So you might try to kind of control the situation to get it to meet the criteria that you expect in order to produce those pleasant feelings for you. So this is the overall problem with the unenlightened mind, just in a kind of 
nutshell, so to speak, and I've gone into a lot more detail in other parts of this program. But I was interested to remind you of this because you're going to see these same traits in animals. You're going to see this craving, right? What do animals want? They want a certain territory. They want their food. They want certain things. They want to be comfortable. And when they get what they want, okay, they're somewhat content. But then if they don't get what they want, they become hostile. They become aggressive. They become angry. They growl, right? That's all that an animal can do. But we essentially do the same thing in the human state that when we don't get the objects of our affection, we come out with wrong speech. We start being hostile. We start being aggressive. We start growling at people around us. And we don't recognize this as part of our animal existences. We just think it's normal in the unenlightened state because we're practicing wrong view. We think that this person has caused us to be angry, so therefore they deserve to be yelled at. They deserve our hostility. But when you start understanding that this isn't true, this is an animal instinct, then with this wisdom of the Buddhist teachings, you can get your arms around this craving, desire, attachment that's causing the mind to chase after the objects of its affection. And then if you can kind of temper that and restrain the mind, then you won't experience this arising anger when you don't get what you want. Or as you're even transitioning your mind and your mind still has craving in there, when you don't get what you want and you feel a bit of sadness or you feel a bit of frustration, then you learn that the wrong thing to do in the situation is to growl or be hostile or be aggressive with the people around you because that's not going to produce wholesome results. When we become hostile and aggressive with people around us, all of that just comes back to us. So an animal is going to want to protect its existence. It's going to want to mark off its territory, right? It goes around and urinates and defecates in certain areas so other animals know this is mine, this is my territory. Or when a certain animal walks through the forest, it's going to have a certain existence. It's going to have a certain fear of other predators, perhaps, because of this personal existence view or this self that's in the unenlightened mind. It's holding on to this personal existence view, thinking that this physical body is the self that causes the fear in animals. And it causes fear in human beings because we want to protect the mind. We want to protect this body. We want to hold on to everything so tightly that we think that we need to be fearful and kind of look out around us for any enemies or any predators that are coming. So we tend to kind of look at others, we judge others, and with this conceit, we kind of put ourselves either above or below other beings, kind of we are either superior or inferior to others around us. And then we either come out with arrogance and pride, thinking we're superior, or when we feel that we're inferior to others, then we feel that we somehow lack certain qualities and therefore our mind can't be calm and peaceful around others looking at others equally we instead feel inferior 
This is also from our animal existences because in a pack of animals, there's going to be the alpha animals, there's going to be the kind of followers, there's this pack, there's this herd, and we need to know what the pecking order is because, for example, like elephants, the matriarchs of elephants are what keeps the pack alive or keeps the herd of elephants alive because they know where all the food is, they know where all the water is, and they kind of lead the other animals to ensure they know where to get water and food from. So this pecking order in the animal world is actually helpful. It's actually beneficial. It's part of their way of survival. But in the human realm, we retain this interest to put ourselves above others or put ourselves below others. And because we're retaining that conditioning from our animal existences, it then causes us problems in this human world when we start putting ourselves above or below others. This personal existence view, looking out for enemies, being fearful of other predators, thinking that somebody's going to take something that belongs to you, that this is mine, 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 you can't have it, the mind is unwilling to share, and having this superiority or inferiority that's in the mind looking for a pecking order in the animal realm this stuff all makes sense but once we get to the human realm we don't realize that that's conditioning left over from our animal existences and it serves us no purpose here in this existence and it only gets in the way of having wholesome productive harmonious peaceful relationships with all people because if we go around being fearful that somebody's going to take something that belongs to us, now we can't trust others and we can't be open to others. Or if we go around constantly trying to figure out if we're superior or inferior through judging others, now we can't be open and friendly and peaceful and harmonious with others because we're always trying to judge others and figure out where we fit into this pecking order. And that's going to cause problems and it's going to inhibit us from being able to have opportunities where we can just experience life in a peaceful way and get along with all beings in a harmonious way. All of this is coming from the conditioning that we've had in our previous lives. Yes, a good amount of it's coming from that. But also, depending on how you were brought up, depending on what people you've been around, depending on what environments you've been around, your mind has also been conditioned this way in your current life as well. Because the vast majority of the world is unenlightened. We have way, 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 way more unenlightened beings in the world than we have enlightened beings. So that means we have a whole bunch of humans in this world that are essentially functioning like animals. We all function like animals in the unenlightened world, in the unenlightened mind. So in this world with lots of other humans that are functioning through this unenlightened mind, our mind then becomes conditioned to think that this is the way that we're supposed to function. So if you were brought up in a household or if you had friends that were judgmental towards others, and that's the way that you experience life is everyone's always judging others, then it makes sense that your mind has that certain aspect as well, that you judge others and you're looking for a certain pecking order. 
or if you grew up being fearful of certain things because other people around you were fearful or if you grew up that when you got what you wanted everything was smiles and happy and when you didn't get what you wanted then you became angry and hostile and that's the way the people around you functioned then that's the way that the similar species of your pack in this human world function and you associated with that you were socialized that way your mind learned those behaviors from other similar animals or other similar species human beings in this life so in this current life your mind has also been conditioned to function in this way much like an animal based on the people that you've associated with based on the upbringing that you've had based on the communities that you've been part of but what this path to enlightenment is all about is identifying these things so that then once you see that judgment doesn't lead to anything wholesome then you learn and you gain this wisdom through the buddhist teachings that judging others is only going to harm your own mind and then you learn how to transform that and no longer judge people and when you learn through the Buddhist teachings that it's craving, desire, attachment that's causing the discontent mind and you can't hold on to things very tightly, you need to share and you need to be giving and generous. When you learn that wisdom through the Buddhist teachings, then you start practicing that way and you start seeing the condition of the mind gradually improve. And then when you start diminishing your anger or your hatred or your ill will and you start practicing good moral conduct, you start seeing that how by you practicing things like right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, that through you practicing this eightfold path, the condition of your mind is improving and your relationships are improving as well, then you see the wisdom, you see the truth for yourself, and you acquire this wisdom that these teachings are indeed leading you to more and more wholesome relationships, more and more peacefulness, where you can function in the world through this wisdom of the Buddhist teachings, and the mind moves closer and closer to this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. And as it does, and you unravel this conditioning from all these animal existences, and you unravel this conditioning from this current existence of being misled to think that it's other people that are causing your anger, or that it's correct to be hostile and aggressive with people, and it's okay to be hateful and talk in unkind ways to people and you perhaps have been taught to judge other people and when you start unraveling all these different aspects that the buddha teaches as part of his teachings and undo that conditioning and the mind moves to this more peaceful contented mental state then you know that you've actually solved the bigger problem here which the bigger problem is this cycle of rebirth you've got these high-level problems of craving anger and ignorance or greed hatred and delusion this unknowing of true reality and those boil down into the 10 fetters these are the 10 pollutions of the mind or the 10 taints these need to be eradicated from the mind in order to attain enlightenment and as you do the discontentedness gradually is eliminated and diminished but 
the bigger problem that you're solving as the mind gets to this enlightened mental state is that you're no longer going to be reborn in this cycle of rebirth because the mind has now gained the wisdom that it's now moved closer and closer to this human existence that you're truly becoming more and more human that you eradicate this continuous cycle of rebirth because you eliminate all the difficulties associated with this existence this is why when you move to the first stage of enlightenment that you've essentially transcended a lot of the animal instincts so therefore when you're reborn if you happen to die in the first stage of enlightenment you come back to being human again you don't get reborn into any of the lower realms or if you die at the second stage of enlightenment you have now become more and more human and that's why you're reborn back into the human world or if you die at the third stage of enlightenment you end up being reborn in the heavenly realm and from there you will ultimately attain enlightenment but if you attain enlightenment at the fourth stage of enlightenment you will know that for yourself because the discontentedness will be completely eliminated from the mind and having discovered that as you've progressed more and more through this wisdom and through this training you'll no longer experience the difficulties of sickness aging and death there will still be sickness of the human body but the mind won't be discontent because of it the body will still experience aging because of impermanence the body's going to age but you will no longer be discontent you'll no longer be looking at each wrinkle and worried about each wrinkle or each individual gray hair or you know the fact that you can't walk as smoothly and as briskly as you did when you were younger you will no longer look at that as a difficulty or a problem you will just observe that this is part of impermanence this is part of aging and you just will need to get comfortable with that as part of the body aging and you also will no longer experience the difficulties of death your own death or the death of loved ones that you will get to the point where you train the mind so deeply that you're no longer fearing death that you will just be comfortable with that knowing that this physical body is impermanent and you can't retain existence permanently and then when other people around you die you will understand that that's part of this whole cycle of rebirth it's part of the universal truth of impermanence and there is no grief there's no sorrow there's no despair when people around you die because you just understand what that is that it's part of this whole cycle of rebirth it's part of the natural laws of existence and you might appreciate the time that you had with this person you might have gratitude for that but it won't feel like someone's pulled the carpet out from under your feet and knocked out your legs when someone dies that's close to you because the mind that is enlightened no longer is going to have this craving desire attachment to hold on to this person and the mind is going to know that this death is just part of life so let me pause here and see what questions you guys have before we move on to talk more about the realms of existence and other things that i have to share with you guys today if you would like to ask a question just put those into the comment section of facebook youtube or zoom 
our moderators will see that and get your question asked during the class. And in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions you have directly. So David, it's essentially the cycle of rebirth, which is the reason for our animal instincts and for our inclination towards unwholesome behavior. It's the ignorance in the mind of each being of why we continue to experience the cycle of rebirth. It's craving that is creating the next rebirth, but it is the cycle of rebirth that's just part of the natural laws of existence that this cycle of rebirth is going to just continue for each person who hasn't yet extinguished craving anger and ignorance. One of the ways to understand this is if you have a fire burning, let's just say this fire, one fire is craving, one fire is anger, one fire is ignorance. But let's just primarily focus on this fire of craving. If this fire, as you progress on this path to enlightenment, is diminishing and diminishing and diminishing and you're working on extinguishing it, but at the end of this life, if there's still some fire burning or there's still some embers, then what happens is there's a spark and that spark floats through the air and then it creates another fire. This is how another existence comes to be in the cycle of rebirth. So it's craving that is the fuel that causes the next rebirth. But the reason why that craving is still there that keeps causing this continuous rebirth and the cycle of rebirth is because of ignorance, because of delusion, because the mind still has craving. The mind doesn't even know if it's ignorant of these teachings. The mind doesn't even know that craving is what's causing discontentedness. So therefore, it doesn't even know that craving is causing rebirth. So the mind and these beings just keep being recreated and reborn over and over and over again. Now, each time there's a new birth, it's a completely new existence. We call it the cycle of rebirth. But a better way to explain this would be the cycle of new existence. So when you were a snake, a lizard, a whale, donkey, a deer, a lion, a bear, each one of these are a brand new physical form and a brand new consciousness. And now being in the human world, the human realm, there's this new physical body and there's this new mind, completely new mind, completely new existence. But the craving and certain residual memories from our previous lives, they get transferred into the new existence. This is one of the reasons why some people in the human realm can observe their existences in the past because there's these residual memories. But it's craving that is the cause of all discontentedness, and it's also the cause of rebirth because of that fire burning, that craving, that's the fuel that keeps this whole cycle of rebirth going on and on and on for each individual being. Thank you for clarifying that, David. Those are all the questions we have for now. Okay, so the next thing I would like to talk to you about are the five realms of existence. But before I start talking about it in detail, what I would like to ensure that I preface all this with is to help you understand that the five realms of existence that the Buddha shared are not meant to fear you, guilt you, or shame you into practicing his teachings whatsoever. He never used guilt, shame, or fear in order to motivate people to practice his teachings. One of the primary goals of his teachings is to eliminate 
discontentedness. That's the whole goal. And guilt, shame, and fear is discontentedness. So he never used guilt, shame, or fear to motivate people to learn and practice his teachings. So as we talk about the five realms of existence, if you've had situations in the past where you've been involved in communities where these type of things were used to kind of guilt, shame, or fear you into practicing those teachings or believing in those teachings, that conditioning that you have may start rising up in the mind and making you think that that's what the Buddha's doing or that's what I'm doing. So I would like to just preface everything that I share about the five realms of existence as that's not what we're doing here. We're just sharing the truth. We're sharing the truth of what actually exists in this world and this cycle of rebirth and these five realms of existence are the truth. But you'll never hear me and you'll never see the Buddha use these as a way of guilt shaming or fearing you into learning and practicing his teachings. That's not what these are are there for. That's not what they're designed for. It's just to help you understand true reality of what is and isn't happening. And as you progress on this path, you may see situations where people are fearful of these five realms, but that's not the way that we should be looking at this. Because as you heard me share very early in the book, as you heard me share very early in this group learning program, Gautama Buddha's teachings are not a religion, the way that I look at it and I feel the way that the Buddha looked at it. When he attained enlightenment, he didn't say, I have discovered a new religion. Now come learn this new religion and let me guilt and shame you into doing that. That's not what he did. He experienced this utter peaceful, calm, serene, and consent mind with joy. And as he discovered how to do that, he then shared the teachings with those people who chose to learn. He never forced people. He never coerced people. He never twisted people's arms in order to try to learn and practice his teachings because you can't force somebody to attain enlightenment. There's just no possible way because there's a million and one decisions somebody has to make in order to attain enlightenment along with meditating and learning these teachings and transforming the mind and actively working to train the mind. It has to be conscious choices that a practitioner is making to progress on this path to enlightenment. So you can't force somebody, you can't guilt, shame, or fear them into attaining enlightenment because they have to choose to do it on their own. And when you hear me talk about the Buddhist teachings aren't a religion, if you've been in communities where different realms of heaven and hell have been taught and you looked at that as a religion and now when you hear the buddhist teachings encompass some of these things you may start to associate the buddhist teachings as being a religion and i'm just going to take a moment here to share with you that i suggest that you don't do that because that can kind of take the mind in a direction that wouldn't be conducive to attaining enlightenment. The way that I think about religion is I think about it as rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. I think of it as there's some original teacher who shared some teachings to improve people's lives and help people in the life. And then after that original teacher's death, other people kind of gathered up the teachings created some centralized organization, and then they distribute these 
teachings, trying to convince other people to practice these teachings. Well, that's not what the Buddha did. The Buddha didn't create a centralized organization to collect up his teachings and distribute his teachings to convince everyone to practice them. He also didn't have any rites, rituals, ceremonies, or worship. None of that was in his teachings whatsoever. And none of that leads to enlightenment. But if you've been brought up in communities where you've learned certain realms of existence and you looked at that as religion, when you hear me talking about these five realms, you might start having some of that conditioning arise in your mind. So what I share with you today about the five realms, be sure that you understand that this is just teaching you what is true reality. And remember, on top of all of this, I teach you don't ever believe anything I say, but instead look at it and investigate it and see the truth for yourself. As the mind awakens, you may end up seeing past lives. And if you do, or you've already seen past lives, then you know the truth for yourself. But if you never actually see past lives, you might actually be able to observe some of these things as you progress in your path. And I'll explain that later about how these things start to surface and that as these things start to surface in the mind, if you understand the five realms of existence, then the mind can be more peaceful knowing that what you're experiencing is completely normal. So before I get to that, let me just explain these five realms first so that you can understand what they are. The five realms of existence are heavenly realm, human realm, afflicted spirits, animal, and hell. These are the five realms of existence. The Buddha experienced these on his own through observing past lives, and that's how he knew that they existed. He was able to teach them because he recalled the memories of existing as beings in each of these realms. And there's other people even alive today that have experienced these similar things. And that's how we know. And I can look you in the eye and tell you with 100% certainty, this is the truth, that there are indeed these five realms because someone who's experienced it, they know with 100% certainty that this is what actually happens. But if you've been taught that there's only one life and you only ever get one life, then yeah, this cycle of rebirth might sound a little bit strange to you. But you haven't seen any evidence that you only get one life. There is no evidence of that. There's no evidence whatsoever that we only get one life. But as you learn about the cycle of rebirth, there is a mountain of evidence that shows that indeed this cycle of rebirth is true and these five realms are exactly true. But let me explain to you what they are first, a little bit more detail. In this heavenly realm, in all of these realms, beings can exist in these realms within the same space. It's not like there's this heavenly realm that's off in space somewhere. There's this hell realm deep in the core of the earth that's burning up with beings. And these are like all different spaces. Just like there's a human being sitting in this chair right now, there can be a heavenly being sitting in this chair as well. There can also be an afflicted spirit. There can be an animal, a dog or a cat or some other animal can come and sit in this chair. And likewise, a hell being 
can come and sit in this chair. So when we talk about realms, it makes us think that they're kind of in different places around you know space you know time and space or around the universe but in reality what we're really talking about is just different beings but they really occupy the same space this is why human beings come in contact with animals this is why some human beings have been in contact with afflicted spirits or what we might call a ghost likewise heavenly beings and hell beings can also exist in the same time and space as a human being. They're not off in distant places. Beings that are in the heavenly realm or heavenly beings, they only experience pleasant feelings. So when it comes to those three feelings of discontentedness, pleasant feelings, painful feelings, or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, if you have been a heavenly being or if you become a heavenly being, you're only ever going to experience the pleasant feelings, happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria. That's what heavenly beings experience. And because of that, because always experiencing pleasant feelings, they don't really have the motivation in order to cultivate their consciousness to attain enlightenment. So what you might have been taught in the past is that once you get to heaven, that's the permanent destination and that's what is the ultimate goal. That's not true because as you know, the universal truth of impermanence, the heavenly realm is not permanent. Beings who exist in the heavenly realm can attain enlightenment from there. They can cultivate their consciousness and attain enlightenment, but they ultimately oftentimes lack motivation to do so. And this is why beings from the heavenly realm will oftentimes fall back down to one of the other realms. It's not the ideal. It's not what you would want. It's not what you should desire. It's not the ultimate goal of this path to exist in the heavenly realm because these beings are still in the cycle of rebirth. Sure, they're experiencing only pleasant feelings, but those are discontent feelings that's still discontentedness. Their mind is still unenlightened. So in the heavenly realm, you can attain enlightenment, but because of always experiencing these pleasant feelings, they oftentimes lack the motivation to learn and practice to gain that wisdom to transform the mind and actually get to enlightenment. This human realm, you guys are most familiar with this human realm because you're experiencing a human existence at this point and your mind can remember and recall what it's like to be in this human realm or this human existence. In this human existence, we experience pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. We experience the whole spectrum of discontentedness, all three types of feelings. We have the ability in this human realm to cultivate the consciousness, to train the mind, to develop the mind, to attain enlightenment. And we will typically have the motivation, more so than a heavenly being, to learn and practice these teachings because we experience all three feelings. Because we experience the pleasant feelings, okay, great, that's wonderful, but we also experience these painful feelings, this sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, and we also experience the neither painful nor pleasant, 
like boredom, loneliness, shyness. This can be used as motivation that says, I'm not interested in experiencing these feelings anymore. Therefore, let me cultivate the mind. Let me train the mind. Let me develop the mind so that I can eliminate these things. Where a heavenly being doesn't have that motivation. So here in the human realm, this is like the ideal existence because we have these three feelings which ultimately motivate us to learn and practice the teachings and we have the ability to cultivate our consciousness. It's only in the human realm that these conditions exist, creating this ideal existence. In the heavenly realm, they can cultivate their consciousness and they can attain enlightenment, but they lack motivation because they only experience pleasant feelings. We don't have that same issue here in the human realm. As we move down into the lower realms, what you're going to see is they have no ability to attain enlightenment. They can't cultivate their consciousness to the same degree as a human and heavenly being. So therefore, they can't attain enlightenment in the lower realms of afflicted spirits, animal realm, and hell. While they experience a lot of these same discontent feelings that we experience in the human realm, they don't have the ability to cultivate the consciousness. So for example, the realm right below us, the afflicted spirits realm, they experience painful feelings and they experience feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, but they can't cultivate their consciousness to enlightenment. These beings have extensive amounts of craving, desire, attachment to people, to places, to possessions. If you've ever encountered a ghost, for example, that's what an afflicted spirit is. And the reason why they're still lingering, oftentimes thinking that they're still human and they have these apparitions, is that they're holding on. They're so attached to the people, places, and possessions that they had when they were human that now, even though they've been reborn, they've died, and they've been reborn as an afflicted spirit, they can't let go. And therefore, they're kind of almost trapped. All of these lower realms are almost like being trapped. The Buddha talked about the animal realm as being trapped in a prison. It's like being in a prison because you have to be reborn so many times in the animal realm to get back to a human birth for the opportunity to attain enlightenment. And that's one of the reasons why the human realm is so ideal is because once you get to that existence, you have the ability to attain enlightenment. Where in these lower realms, you don't have that ability and it's almost like being trapped in a prison. So if you've ever experienced ghosts or you've ever been around apparitions, that's the afflicted spirit realm. And you have the truth that that realm exists, that there are beings in that realm. And I'm sure you guys are very familiar with the animal realm. The animal realm, these beings, they do experience pleasant feelings. If you've ever seen a dog playing or you've seen a cat playing or you've seen two fish or bears or any other animals playing, then you know they experience pleasant feelings. But they also experience painful feelings. They get angered. They get enraged. They get hostile. They get aggressive. That's those painful feelings. And if you also have been around dogs or cats or other wild animals, 
they also have neither painful nor pleasant. They experience boredom and loneliness, just laying around the house, not really knowing what to do, and just ho-hum, you know, whatever. So in that realm, they experience all three feelings, just like we do in the human realm. But they lack the ability to cultivate their consciousness to the level of enlightenment. They can't sit down and study the Buddhist teachings to understand craving, anger, and ignorance. They can't understand the five precepts. They can't understand the path to enlightenment. They can't meditate to cultivate their consciousness to the level of enlightenment. Sure, an animal can be trained to let go of hostility and aggression. If you've ever been around dogs that have been trained or other animals that have been trained, they can be trained to let go of that. I've even seen here in Thailand, tigers and lions that are very deeply trained to let go of a lot of their aggression and hostility, but they can't quite get rid of all of it. There's still some of that typically there because they can't quite cultivate their mind and they surely can't do it independently. They can't have this independent journey where they're seeking guidance from a teacher to learn, reflect, and practice teachings to evolve the condition of the mind. So they are operating through these kind of basic survival instincts. Animals will typically eat, sleep, play, fight, kill. They'll have sex. These are kind of the, the six things that an animal does. And oftentimes in our human existence, we kind of want to do those things a lot, a lot, a lot too. We are the same way. You know, we sleep, we eat, we play, we fight or kill or be aggressive with each other. We have sex and we look to have multiple partners for some people. And we go around and have this sexual drive, much like an animal, and spreading our interest to procreate around to many different beings, much like an animal. So these survival instincts that are ingrained in the consciousness of an animal, they're there for a reason because that's how animals survive. But we retain a lot of that conditioning as we move into the human realm because a lot of the beings that are in the human realm are reborn out of this animal realm. So we oftentimes as human beings come straight from the animal realm right into the human realm. So we retain a lot of that conditioning. And then in the hell realm, these beings are exclusively experiencing painful feelings. That's all they're experiencing. There is no pleasant feelings. There is no neither painful nor pleasant. It's just exclusively painful feelings. They have no ability to cultivate their consciousness because they're in such agony and such pain that there's just no window of time to even cultivate the consciousness or even have the ability to cultivate the consciousness. Just like afflicted spirits, they have extensive amounts of craving, desire, attachment. That's one of the reasons why they're in the hell realm because of constant cravings and producing all kinds of immoral conduct. They also have extensive amounts of anger, hatred, and ill will. And they have extensive amounts of ignorance, delusion, or unknowing of true reality. And these beings in these three lower realms, afflicted spirits, animal, and hell, they're just constantly being reborn over and over and over again until they eventually 
have the opportunity to kind of improve their consciousness to a certain degree and ultimately become human. And that will typically happen within the animal realm and beings will be reborn from the animal realm into the human realm. But in reality, beings can be reborn in and out of any of these realms. There's no such thing as you have to be in hell for a period of time, then move to animal, then afflicted spirits, then to human. There's no kind of sequential ordering like this. You can move from any of these realms in and out of them. So you can go from the heavenly realm down to any of these other realms, and you can move from any of these realms up to any of these other realms. You can actually be reborn from hell straight into heaven. That's a potential as well. There's no serial nature of how you have to sequentially be reborn from one realm to the next. Now, the goal would be that in this human existence, this ideal existence, that you learn and practice in a way that you never again ever experience any of these other realms whatsoever, that you attain enlightenment in this life and escape the whole cycle of rebirth, never again experiencing existence in any of these other realms. But if you do that is completely dependent on your own personal choices. So what's happened in the past and existences that you've had in the past, it's in the past. It's in the past. So there's no need to be worried about that or fearful about that or upset about that. And if you're going to be reborn in the future, there's no need to be worried about that, fearful about that, or upset about that, because that's way, way, way in the future. What instead a wise practitioner would do is be pleased that they've attained this human birth and stay focused on eliminating discontentedness, establishing right view, and practicing all the other teachings on the Eightfold Path so that in this human birth, you never again need to experience any rebirth in any other realm. That's the ultimate goal. And you'll be able to see that you're doing that more and more as the discontentedness slowly starts to diminish more and more in this human existence as you're learning and practicing more and more. So let me pause and see what questions you guys have. Remember, just submit your comments into the comment sections and we'll see those, or you can electronically raise your hand to ask any questions directly. We have a few questions on Zoom. Holly asks, can you talk about what entering birth and exiting death are like in the heavenly realm? What entering birth and exiting in the heavenly realm is like? Why would you be interested to know that, Holly? Curious. Because I, I don't know the answer. I, I can't really, I couldn't explain that, what that would feel like. I don't have those memories, but I'm just curious why you would be interested in that, other than just curiosity. I actually thought about this question a couple of weeks ago, mm -hmm. and I kind of put it aside thinking it wasn't really something that I needed to really know. But since we were on the topic, I thought it just came to my mind um, just out of curiosity because I, my because of my background, I think of heaven is a certain thing in my mind or a heavenly realm and I didn't I can't really comprehend what it was what it's like do they have birth like 
a woman is pregnant and gives birth or does a being just show up there and then when their time's done oh. they just disappear from there just curious not anything i actually need to know but i didn't know if you had any information on that you could share yeah that helps clarify now i understand holly okay so the heavenly realm the afflicted spirit realm and the hell realm these are what we call formless realms there is no physical form they're formless realms and the way that beings are born into those realms are what we call spontaneous birth because it's formless there's no pregnancy there's no sex there's no none of that stuff to create beings in those three realms because it's a formless realm and they're spontaneous birth they just kind of instantaneously are born or reborn and then in that heavenly realm those beings their lifespan is very long compared to a human birth uh, many hundreds of years compared to a human birth the human realm and animal realm these are the form realms there's physical form there's you know skin there's bones there's blood for a human and for an animal in these form realms there is intercourse there is a being that's formed inside of a womb there's the birthing process and all those things. But in those formless realms, those are all spontaneous birth. And same thing with death, it's spontaneous death. Okay, uh, we have uh, another question from Ali. Where can we read about the karma to cause to be born to each existence? I have this in volume 11 of the book series, The Words of the Buddha. If you download that, you'll see the words of the Buddha that explains each of the individual realms and what things that we are doing in this human existence that a, a being would end up in any of these other realms, whether it's the lower realms or even the heavenly realms. So download a volume 11 from the website buddhadailywisdom.com. Click on the upper right corner, free books. And then volume 11, you'll see the teachings about these realms of existence. And the Buddha will connect things like the five precepts to the different realms. He will connect parts of the Eightfold Path to the five realms and helping you see how you're reborn into these realms. And one of the beauties is, is that you can see the truth for yourself, is that when he explains it to you, like, for example, this first precept of killing living beings. Of course, that's what he teaches. We know that that first precept of not killing living beings helps to reduce anger and hatred, ill will from a human being's mind. And having done so, the mind will become more enlightened. But he also teaches in those same teachings that I have in volume 11, how if somebody repeatedly kills over and over and over and over again, he explains how that person will have a shortened lifespan in this human existence and how they will be reborn into the hell realm. And you can see the truth for yourself that if you look at people who are killing regularly and repeatedly, they tend to have very short lifespans. Like think about soldiers, not that they're necessarily bad, but they're going off into war and they're killing and they're killing and they're killing. And yeah, you know, some of them die at 18, 20, 25 years old. And that's because of the gamma that they're killing. Or if you look at people who go out on these merchant ships that are catching fish or seafood or all these things, it's a very dangerous job. 
and they're out there sustaining their life on killing living beings and oftentimes they die have a very short lifespan because of it so when you read volume 11 in the buddha's explaining how conduct in this human life results in rebirth in these various realms don't believe it investigate it and look to see that it's true based on what he's explaining and you can see the truth for yourself that what he's explaining is very very true Chrissy has a question. She asks, do heavenly and hell beings have human characteristics? Are these beings with us like animals are? These beings can be around us at any time. And heavenly beings are typically going to be around people who are learning and practicing these teachings closely. As your mind becomes more and more enlightened, there will be heavenly beings that will kind of be there as almost like a support or assistance. You still have to discern the truth. You still have to make the decisions. But as you're going to hear me talk here in a bit, is heavenly beings actually oftentimes will provide guidance because beings from these various realms can actually communicate with each other. So even though we're in the human realm, Heavenly beings can communicate with us and we can communicate with them. Same thing. We can communicate with afflicted spirits. We can communicate with hell beings and those beings can communicate with us. Just like you can talk to your dog and your cat and they can respond to you as an animal. These other beings in these other realms, even though you might not be able to see them in all situations, they're able to communicate with you and you're able to communicate with them whether they're heavenly beings or hell beings. And like I mentioned, those who are into wholesome activities tend to have more and more heavenly beings surrounding them. And those who are into the darkness tend to have afflicted spirits and hell beings around them influencing their conduct. But it's still that human being who's making the decisions to do those things. These beings from afflicted spirits and hell cannot force us or control us to do one thing or another it's still our decisions but those negative beings will tend to congregate around people who are open to their unwholesomeness and they look to influence them likewise heavenly beings tend to associate and be around human beings who are into wholesome things because we're open to their influence donnie has a question other than residual memory, are there any other ways or methods to know that these realms exist? There's the residual memories, but also, as you're going to hear me talk here in a bit, is that there's this communication that can oftentimes occur between the different realms. That's one way. If you've ever had divine voices or heavenly voices, or if you've ever seen afflicted spirits or ghosts, that's one way. If you've ever had devilish beings from the hell realm influencing the mind and trying to convince you to do one thing or another that's a way those are ways that you can observe this there's people in the world who have observed these realms and have observed these past lives and you'll see on the internet a lot of people write about it they might call it reincarnation which is actually something completely separate and different from rebirth Reincarnation isn't actually the truth. It's the rebirth that is actually the truth. I can talk about what these two things are to help you guys understand the difference. 
But through your own investigation of either observing these beings uh, with your own eyes, observing them through communication, or perhaps even seeing other people that talk about this and seeing some of the things that they're able to discern and discuss as part of their previous lives, that may help you as well. One of the more famous ones that I oftentimes share is there's a little boy in Australia who at the age of four started having significant memories of Princess Diana. And he was explaining meetings that he was having as Princess Diana, private meetings that weren't public, that nobody knew about. And they were just a limited number of people. And he could explain the people that he met with. He could explain what they were wearing. And he could explain what he was wearing as Princess Diana. And he was only four years old in Australia and had no knowledge of Princess Diana whatsoever. And people took these stories that he shared at the age of four and went to the royal family in England and people who knew about Princess Diana's life in these meetings that he was talking about, they actually confirmed that his memories of what he was experiencing of these private meetings that were never publicized and the garments that people were wearing during those meetings was spot on. He was 100% correct. So through your own investigation and maybe experiencing these kind of things that you can research on the internet may help you come to understand that these realms are true. But one of the things that I always come back to is that, yes, this is the truth and we share it. And there's reasons why I'm sharing this that I'm going to get to here in a moment. But in reality, it really doesn't truly matter. What really matters is that we're humans now and we can attain enlightenment through training the mind and attaining enlightenment so that we never experience these realms ever again. What I often suggest to people and guide people is to stay true to the core path, the central path of the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, the natural law of gamma, the three poisons, all these different teachings that are the real core path, because that's what's going to produce enlightenment. Learning about these realms, it's interesting. It can be insightful as I talk about what I'm going to plan to talk about here soon. But in reality, it really doesn't play a real detrimental role in your attainment of enlightenment. Because if there is a hell realm, okay, fine. The goal is to never end up there. Let's just say there isn't a hell realm. I know there is, but let's just say there isn't. Okay, so what? There isn't a hell realm. The goal is to attain enlightenment, eliminate your discontentedness so that you know that the mind is enlightened in this lifetime, in this human realm. That's the real goal. But for some reason, this particular topic, it almost has like sex appeal that people are really, really interested in learning and knowing about this particular topic. When for me, I consider this to be the least important the least significant topic that the Buddha ever actually taught. Even though in this book series that I, I wrote, the teachings on the cycle of rebirth make up a, a real thick book, but all the other teachings of the Buddha are actually much more exhaustive. If you look at his teachings as a comprehensive collection of teachings, his teachings to eliminate discontentedness are you know 95 98 percent of what he taught there's only this kind of like 
2% of it that is really about the cycle of rebirth in detail about these realms because in reality it really doesn't matter. Uh, what really matters is that we stay focused on the core path to eliminating discontentedness. Okay, we have a question from Anastasio. Is there a teaching to be able to see the past lives? Is there a meditation technique or something that will help me see for myself that and verify the truth? As you learn and progress on this path, if the mind is going to see past lives, it will see it. Because as you clear out the pollution, which is what I'm going to talk about next, if the mind is meant to see it, it will happen. There's nothing that you can physically do to force it to occur. And if somebody has craving, desire, attachment to see their past lives, I would say that it, it's not going to happen. And if it does happen, how do you know that that's even accurate or not if the mind is craving it so much? So the more you stay dedicated to learning and practicing, awakening the mind, if you see past lives, then it happens. And if you don't, you don't. There's no big deal. I know people who have attained enlightenment who have never seen their past lives whatsoever. So you have to get to the point where you no longer have a craving, desire, attachment to seeing and observing past lives. Because if you hold on to that craving, desire, attachment, it's going to hinder you from actually attaining enlightenment. So it's best to just let go of any desire, even any interest to see past lives. Because if it's meant to be, it will happen. And if it doesn't, that's fine. You can still attain enlightenment. So there is nothing that you can do to force the mind to see past lives. But don't be surprised if it happens, which is what I'm going to share with you with you next. Ali has another question. If one lives a very materialistic and party life and not interested in learning Dharma, what kind of rebirth will that individual take? There's no one for one. You can't say, okay, here's what this person's doing what realm are they going to end up in, right? There's no this one-for-one one kind of thing because there's many different things, many different criteria, and there's no exact science of mapping over exactly where someone's rebirth is going to happen. And you don't know what the condition of their mind is going to be like once they die. So if somebody lives a materialistic party life in their 20s and 30s, but as they age, they learn and practice these teachings and train the mind, they can actually attain enlightenment. Or if they don't attain enlightenment, they might get to the first or second stage and be reborn back in the human world. So there's no part of this path where we should judge ourselves or judge others and say, okay, this person is materialistic and a party person. That means they're going to be reborn in hell or afflicted spirits or something like this. It's best to not get trapped into trying to figure that out because it's only going to harm your own mind and you don't know what the condition of that person's mind is going to be once they actually die. Whatever is going to be once somebody dies, it's going to be. That's what's going to happen. I used the cycle of rebirth as a little bit of motivation up front that I wasn't interested in being reborn in any of these realms whatsoever. And I was having such a miserable existence in this human life that I'm like, I got to get out of here. And I just use that as motivation. But we should never look at this as kind of like punishment. And it's also not an accumulation of everything we've done in our life 
and then we get judged once we die to determine where we end up. It's literally the moment we die, what's the condition of the mind in that moment? And what we've done and all the rest of our life, it doesn't matter. That's why a murderer, for example, can actually attain enlightenment in this life. During the lifetime of the Buddha, there was a, a gentleman who had murdered 999 people during his life. He ultimately ended up ordaining with the Buddha and he attained enlightenment during his life. So we could potentially say, based on the Buddhist teachings, that anyone who murders is going to go to hell. That's what the Buddha teaches. But here's a situation where somebody was murdering their whole life. And then by the time they progressed, they ended up coming in contact with the Buddha. They ordained, they trained, and in a matter of time, they ended up attaining enlightenment and they weren't reborn in hell. So this is why we shouldn't try to figure out where we're going to be reborn or where other people are going to be reborn, but instead just stay focused on the core path and getting to enlightenment. Uh, Teacher David, your point of um, this individual ordaining with the Buddha and ultimately achieving enlightenment uh, brings me to a question which I had, uh, something you posted recently, on the probability of rebirth um, and you being reborn into one of the lower realms, um, hell-afflicted spirits or animal realm, um, that probability being there if you've not reached the first stage of enlightenment in this life. So my question was basically how much uh, of the consciousness has to be um, evolved in order to um, achieve this first stage of enlightenment. It's, um, you know, the level of, um, you know, being born into the lower realms is motivation enough to work hard towards in the path in order to um, uh, achieve closer to enlightenment in this life. However, that in itself, the first stage of enlightenment seems to be something that's um, very challenging and, and uh, difficult to get to. Would this be possible in one lifetime? Everybody who exists today has already had countless lifetimes. Countless, countless, countless lifetimes. So even though you might only have memories of this human birth, this isn't your first birth. And everybody who decides to embark on this path, everyone's starting at different places. Some people's minds are more heavily polluted or defiled than others. Some people's minds are able to retain the teachings better than others. So where you might feel that it's very difficult to get to the first stage of enlightenment, somebody else might not have that same experience. I would say that there's really nothing that's truly difficult about the Buddhist teachings. I think that we make it difficult. I think because of the impermanence that has existed over the last 2,500 years and that the condition of the Buddhist teachings are not as pure as they were when he was alive, that it has become challenging for a lot of people. But now we're living in a time and space where you've got a teacher that is basing what they're teaching purely in the words of the Buddha and you have the ability to break through all those obstacles of the last 2,500 years of impermanence. And by you basing your practice in the words of the Buddha, you can find 
that getting to not just the first stage, but even ultimately to enlightenment can be a lot easier than what you might think. But if someone has been bouncing around from teacher to teacher to teacher, hasn't really taken a real consistent approach to it, hasn't really dedicated and put their diligence into really developing their practice, then it can seem very difficult. But when you kind of pull up the boots, you get really motivated, you stick with one teacher that you see has the teachings very clearly and communicates them very clearly and can provide you guidance and is willing to support you along this path. There's really nothing holding any one of you back from attaining enlightenment in this lifetime other than your own dedication and your own diligence because you have a teacher that's more than willing to spend time and support you, encourage you, and motivate you along this path. You have a teacher who's basing everything that he shares in the words of the Buddha. You know that I've confirmed these teachings through my own practice. So there's really nothing holding you back whatsoever other than your own diligence and your own dedication. So I don't consider the Buddha's teachings difficult. I think that they've become difficult because Human beings have mixed in so many different things that weren't part of his teachings. But when you get back to the purity of his teachings, they're actually quite easy and quite straightforward. Well, I wouldn't say they're easy, but they're quite straightforward once you really approach them in a dedicated way with diligence. But with that said, as I started off, everybody's kind of starting at different places depending on your level of comprehension depending on your level of pollution in the mind people are starting at different places on the path i've had some people that in a matter of six months or a year boom they can really ramp up these teachings very quickly other people you know depending on their life situation their job their partner whether they have children and what relationships they have around them right now it can be a lot more challenging. But regardless, there's really nothing holding any of you guys back from attaining enlightenment in this life. All right, thank you. Uh, we have another question from Chrissy. Is our karma that determines our realms that we have been to or are going to then, or something bigger such as God? It's karma. You're exactly correct there, Chrissy. It's craving, desire, attachment. That is that spark or that fuel that determines if there's going to be rebirth. So if there's craving, desire, attachment in the mind at the time of death, there's going to be rebirth. But which realm we're reborn into and the condition of our physical body or our mind, for example, being reborn into the human realm, that's based on our gamma. So if we were in the animal realm or afflicted spirit or hell, beings being reborn out of these realms into the human realm, they will take on different existences. This is why some people's minds are just very sharp. Lots of intelligence can re learn these teachings very readily, very quickly based on their gamma in their previous lives, but also in this life as well, where other people may be coming out of a hell existence or something like that coming into the human realm their mind might be heavily defiled, heavily polluted, and even getting into this path to enlightenment in the human realm, their mind kind of functions a bit slower. 
and it doesn't kind of jump into these teachings and progresses readily. But that doesn't mean that that's permanent, right? So even though the first year or two or three might be a bit challenging for somebody, that they do see it as difficult to progress on this path. The more that somebody's life kind of clears out. So if I can use you, Manal, for an example, like I know your children are getting ready to go away to college, and that's going to create a whole lot more space in your life for you. Um, and I know Holly's children are getting close to that too. So even though right now your work life and your home life might be cluttered with a whole lot of stuff, in a matter of five or 10 years, for some of you guys that have children or younger children, that stuff's going to all clear out and you're going to have a whole lot different ability to dedicate time, effort, energy, and resources to your development on this path to enlightenment. So getting on this path, while you may be in a period right now where it feels a bit of a struggle and difficult, that doesn't mean it's always going to be that way. So this is where our gamma can improve. So when we're reborn into these various realms, we're reborn because of this craving. That's what's causing the rebirth. But then it's our gamma that decides what realm we're in. And then once we're in that realm, it's also our gamma or our decisions, the decisions that we make that determine how much ability we have to attain enlightenment. So if we have chosen a partner that's very aggressive and very hostile and very vindictive and very controlling, that's going to make it more challenging for us. But that was our choice. But just like that was our choice, we can also choose to move beyond that and get over that obstacle. Or if we've chosen to have 20 children, for example, if somebody out there has 20 children, that's going to put a lot of burden on you to work and apply effort and not saying that you're bad or good or right or wrong for doing that. But that's just what your choices were in this life. And that means that you're going to have very limited time and space to be able to dedicate to this. And that's your gamma. But that's not permanent. So no matter what we're experiencing in this life, we can make decisions to adjust our life. So if we're with a partner who, you know, we're practicing for two, three, four years and they're just making it increasingly difficult for us, we can choose to move beyond that relationship. Or as our children age and move closer into college, that'll give us more time and space. Or like Chrissy, I know she has younger children. She's kind of making it part of her home that her younger children are meditating together with her and she's doing different things to share the teachings with her children so that it becomes part of their life together. This is our gamma. So even though we talk about gamma, it's not punishment and rewards. It's the results of our decisions. So it's almost like we all have made various decisions in our life and we can deal with those decisions and we can make improve decisions to improve our chances of attaining enlightenment. So Chrissy, your decision to involve your children in your path to enlightenment and teaching them meditation and teaching them the path, this is a decision that you've made and this is improving your ability to attain enlightenment because it's improving the results because it's not just you doing this alone, 
but it's you and your children doing it together. And now as a support system, you guys are all moving in the direction of enlightenment. And that is, in my view, ideal. So while we might have certain gamma from our past lives, and even certain gamma in this life, based on our decisions, that gamma is not permanent. We can change that. We can improve that by making wholesome decisions to move our life practice forward and get closer and closer to enlightenment. Yes, uh, thank you for walking through that. Um, there is no more questions as of now. Okay, so this next thing that I would like to share with you is something we've kind of been touching on already, but I've got this neat little image to kind of help you understand this a bit better. You've all experienced countless lives and you may not see that right now and that's okay. I'm not here to convince you that you have had previous lives, but just know that you have. And the Buddha has some very illuminating teachings to help you understand that you have had previous lives that you'll get into as you move into the Pali Canon and English Study Group and you dive into the other teachings that I have available for you guys about this cycle of rebirth. But just in this program, to help you understand a little bit more, is that if you've ever been in a, in a city or a town where you've walked out onto the street and all you can see is that street that you're on, that's basically like the human life that you're in right now. That you can see this human life and you kind of remember certain things from this human life. But as you learn and as you develop the mind and as you clear out some of this pollution, it's like moving up to the top of a mountain and looking over the city and seeing how all the roads connect in, not only within that city, but multiple cities connecting together, where once you get elevated to a higher vantage point, you can now look over this city and see all these different cities connecting to each other. So in this life, if your mind has only been trained for a limited period of time, you're probably only seeing what's happening on this life, on this street. But as you progress on this path and you eliminate more and more pollution, don't be surprised if you start seeing residual memories from past lives. This is where people can get a bit shaken up. If you've only ever been taught that you only get one life and that's all you ever get, well, as you're starting to meditate and as your mind's starting to clear out this pollution, if you start having residual memories when you were an multiple animal existences or when you were other human beings and those memories start flooding back into your mind, if you think you've only ever had this one existence, that can shake you up and you can think you're quite crazy. But what I'm here to share with you is if those things start happening, it's completely normal that if you're now a female and you start having residual memories of being a male in the past and dying in a war, for example, or dying in a car accident or drowning or dying of old age or whatever you have you, or if you're a male now and you've had previous uh, residual memories of other things that have happened in previous lives in any of these realms, that's completely normal. But for some people, if you went to somebody and you start communicating these things, people would tell you you're crazy and you need to take medicine to get rid of those thoughts. But that's not going to solve the problem. 
The unenlightened mind is like a ball of twine that's been bound up really, really tightly. And it's got all these residual memories bound up inside this ball of twine. And as you start training and as you start eliminating the pollution through meditating and all these other teachings that we share, it's like unraveling this ball of twine. And as you do, those residual memories that are bound up in this ball of twine will start to surface. And you just need to process it and just know that, okay, that's information from past lives and just move on. It's no big deal. You don't have to run out and tell everybody about it. You don't have to post about it on Facebook. You don't have to do all those things. If you have questions or you have concerns or you're not quite sure, you can reach out to me and talk to me and I will help you process it. But it's not something that you need to get all shaken up about or take any kind of pride in that you've observed past lives. People who go around and constantly talk about observing their past lives, this is the pride and the arrogance kicking in. You're not interested in that. So if you happen to observe past lives, okay, great. If you happen to not observe it, okay, great. That's fine too. There's no badge of honor to wear around if you happen to see past lives and and know about this stuff. But just know that these things can occur and that you're not going crazy. That if you not only observe past lives, but if you hear voices from heavenly realm or hell realm or things like this, these things happen. Nowadays, people call that person schizophrenic. But in reality, this is somebody who's just receiving communication from different realms. The more somebody trains, the more developed that their mind becomes, the more disciplined their mind becomes, these things don't happen. The mind can be protected from these hell beings that are trying to communicate with you and you can just see it for what it is. So I have students who have had these experiences either before they started learning with me or as they started learning with me, their mind starts to open up, starts to awaken, and they start having these voices or they start hearing things from other realms and they reach out, they get help. I give them some guidance of how to move through that and move past that and they can get to the other side of that. But if we think these people are mentally ill and we start putting them on medications, it doesn't actually solve the problem. It actually represses the problem. So the way to get through that and get past that is to continue to understand it and continue to train the mind so that the mind's protected and is unaffected by this communication from other realms. Moving on to kind of a bit more information about how this animal existences that we've had in the past moves into the human existence is, as I've said, you know, the vast majority of those of us that exist in the human realm have been reborn out of the animal realm. If you think about an animal's mind, that mind is functioning very much like an unenlightened mind. An unenlightened mind is going to lack memory. It's going to be very hindered. It's going to be very muddled. It's not going to have awareness of mind. There's not going to be much clarity. And the mind's going to lack memory, very much like an animal. You know, animals do have the ability to have memory, but they tend to have very bad memories for most of them. So an unenlightened mind is going to function very much like an animal, that it's going to lack memory. 
it's also going to function through a praise and reward system. If you think about as we develop in this human world, we very much look for praise. We very much look for rewards. We very much like that when we get a certificate or we get a degree or somebody acknowledges something positive that we've done in this world, we really revel in that, very much like an animal. That's how animals are trained, through praise and reward. If you think about how animals learn, learning in kind of a pack of like species, they have certain instinctive behaviors, but they also have certain learned behaviors that they learn from their same pack of animals. So wolves learn how to be a wolf from other wolves, or a giraffe learns how to be a giraffe from other giraffes. Human beings learn how to be human beings through other human beings. And this also has certain instinctive behaviors. When we come out of the womb, we know right away to suck on a nipple and that's going to be helpful for us. And as the milk comes into our body, we know that that's helpful for us and, and that's what we do because it's an instinctive behavior. So as we learn from the pack of like species, the pack that we surround ourselves with, if we surround ourselves with wholesome like species, then we're going to learn from those wholesome like species. If we surround ourselves with unwholesome like species, then we're gonna learn from that. That's one of the reasons why in the Buddhist teachings, he prioritizes the communities as being so important. He talks about having confidence in the Buddha, his teachings, and the community. Because by you being around a community of practitioners who are all working towards enlightenment and interested in wholesome conduct, interested in developing wisdom, interested in developing your mental discipline, you will tend to associate and learn from this like species. If you think about some of the ways that we refer to each other when we're angry or we're hostile, someone might say you're acting like an animal, right? That comes from our understanding of the animal realm. When someone who is aggressive and hostile or raging or road rage, we would say that person's acting like an animal. That's the unenlightened mind of a human being being conditioned and functioning like an animal so we call it like we see it. We say that person's acting like an animal. Or we say you're fighting like cats and dogs. Even though this is part of our modern language, we use these phrases and we refer to things this way because on a certain level of our consciousness, we understand this relationship between human beings and animals. In fact, we understand this relationship so well that human beings are almost fascinated with animals. We spend an enormous amount of time being interested in animals. We even now have gotten to the point where we have animals living side by side with us in our homes because we're so fascinated with animals, right? We're so fascinated with animals because of our countless animal existences and we identify with these animals because we have been animals multiple times in the past. But we need to understand in evolving our consciousness that we are no longer animals. We are not an animal. Even though some people say humans are animals, we are not animals. We are human beings with an unenlightened mind 
that is functioning much like an animal, but the goal of this path to enlightenment is to move the mind from those animal instincts to becoming more and more human and functioning like a human being. That's what the goal of this path is. We may still be fascinated with animals. I'm very fascinated with animals. I look at animals and observe animals all the time. When I walk past somebody's yard, if an animal is rah, 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 barking at me, I think right away, ah, that dog's discontent because he's craving permanence. He doesn't want anybody walking in front of his yard. And here I come walking through his yard. He's causing his own discontentedness because of his craving desire attachment. And now that's moved to anger. And it's all because of his ignorance or his lack of wisdom. That's his protection of a self. It's that ego that the animal has that the mind is resorting to. Right. So when we identify and we can see very clearly that going around and killing other beings is an animalistic trait, it's an animalistic behavior, then we can be motivated to understand that choosing to not kill other beings is not a rule to follow. It's not a commandment. It's a way of training our mind to no longer be an animal is that animals kill each other, but a true human being, we shouldn't be killing each other. When we understand that as animals, we steal each other's food, and that is how we survive as animals, then we can see that this precept that the Buddha taught about not stealing, it isn't a rule to follow. It isn't a commandment. It's instead a way to train us to be more human. When we look at this precept of having just one partner, if we're choosing to have sexual contact, that having just one partner is a loyal, committed relationship, and that's how we can function as human beings. But as animals, we didn't function that way. We had sex with everybody and anybody as an animal. So this precept of having sex with one partner and all the other teachings the Buddha shared on that precept it's not a rule to follow. It's not following a rule and checking off a checkbox. It's helping you to understand how to move your mind from this animal instincts, this animal existences to becoming more human, right? This is how the mind is cultivated and developed that as you see these instinctive and learned animal behaviors that you can then move the mind closer and closer to being human. So if your craving is producing wrong speech and you become hostile and angry at your life partner or at your children or at anyone else in your life, think of that as being, oh, I don't want to be an animal. I'm not interested in being an animal. I'm not interested to go back to being an animal. Let me be more human. Let's apologize. Let's say sorry. Let's work at improving our speech in using those five factors of well-spoken speech to become more human rather than resorting to hostility and aggression as an animal. Rather than being selfish and holding on to all of our possessions so tightly, this is my food, right? As an animal, that's what we're going to do. We're going to kill another animal and we're going to growl and we're going to bite and we're going to claw 
and we're going to selfishly hold on to this food because we're looking out for our own survival. Well, when you notice that you're being selfish, think about, oh, that's an animal instinct. That's me being an animal. Let me not be selfish here. Let me share. Let me help others. Let me share my time, my effort, my energy, my resources. I can do that and be more human. I can practice generosity. And that's a wise thing for me to do to become more and more human or more and more enlightened. So by you identifying with these animal instincts and what an animal truly is and what an animal truly does and seeing that the unenlightened mind functions very much like an animal, then you can more clearly see, well, what do I need to shed in order to become more and more human? Essentially becoming an enlightened being is becoming more and more human, eliminating the pollution of this animal conditioning that's in the mind. That's the way to evolve the consciousness and become more and more human. So as we train the mind to become more and more human or more and more enlightened, we can shed these animal instincts. Let me see what questions you guys have here. So in some sense, it's about, this whole path is about letting go of our animal instincts and through the five precepts and the various things that we learn, essentially becoming human. Exactly. That's what we're doing. That's what the whole Eightfold Path is. It's cluing you into this natural law of gamma. It's cluing you into the wisdom, moral conduct, mental discipline that an animal is incapable of understanding. But now that we're in the human realm, even though we've retained some of that conditioning from our animal existences, we can understand this and we can evolve our consciousness. While it isn't easy, it's not difficult either. Once you start getting the guidance that you need and you start applying your dedication and diligence, you can evolve the mind away from these animal instincts and become more and more human. Thank you, David. We can get a Manal now. Yes, uh, Holly has a question. Modern psychology has put them into categories called love languages. One is called words of affirmation, which tells people if they fall into the category, they require praise in order to feel loved. Is this part of the ignorance, unknowing of true reality? A human should not need praise to feel loved, right? This is one I struggle with often. Exactly. What we see in modern psychology is so new and it's only been around for a very limited amount of time. I would say that the Buddha was the world's foremost expert in the human mind that's ever existed. And the fact that he existed 2,500 years ago and understood things back then that people don't even understand today is just blows my mind sometimes how this fully perfectly enlightened Buddha understood the mind so well back then, even more than people who have multiple PhDs today. So the things that you're talking about from modern psychology, I would say just set those things aside and just focus purely on the Buddhist teachings because you shouldn't have to create inner feelings about whether you're loved or not loved. That's the mind craving love and craving for people to think of you in a certain way. Instead, just focus on your own practice wisdom, moral conduct, mental discipline, that eightfold path. And by you functioning more and more human, people will love you. I love you. I'm sure Manal loves you. I'm sure all these other people love you too. You have love. 
but don't be looking for it every day. Do people love me? Yes or no. Do people love me? Yes or no. Do people love me? Yes or no. This is the mind having craving, desire, attachment. Just know that you are loved and then just move on with your life. No longer looking to identify who loves me and who doesn't. This is the mind looking for that pecking order. This is the mind having craving, desire, attachment. You know, does my pack of animals love me today or not? Just know that you're loved and just function as a bright, intelligent, loving human being. And when you put out love, love will come back to you. Uh, I like that Holly brought up the psychology behind uh, some of the things, um, you know, in her experience. I wanted to quickly talk about sort of the biological uh, component to living a human existence. Um, and especially that in the female form. So, for example, if, uh, as you say, in the animal, the vast majority of rebirths have been from an animal existence. So, for my, what I take away is that um, my choice of having children in this life is probably stems from that need uh, in the animal existence to procreate. So uh, while I work through my trauma in this life and um, go ahead and take care of my children and their livelihood, I cannot neglect the fact that there is still a sort of a biological function that's um, inherently part of um, birthing a child. And, um, you know, it's, so in my experience, it seems that something like personal existence view becomes a little bit more challenging to address. Uh, and by extension of having children and taking care of their needs and taking care of their well-being, I bring back the fact that I am, the mind is here and that the child needs to be taken care of. And, you know, I just have to work through a little bit more. And it seems like my growth um, towards the path is a little bit staggered because of the decision to have children, and particularly in this female form. Um, does that make sense, Teacher David? Yeah, I can see that. You know, I, I see my wife and her challenge in letting go of the attachment to our son is significant compared to for me. It was much different for me. I see mothers having a lot of challenges to let go, but not all, not all mothers are that way, right? There are some mothers who, as soon as the baby's born, they're not attached and they go off and do other things, right? So there's all different kind of spectrums. But just because being a mother and lots of mothers have challenges with attachment to their children doesn't mean that you're hindered or you're unlikely to attain enlightenment in this life and so forth and so on. You can attain enlightenment as someone who's given birth. Don't look at it as a hindrance, but I also look at it as a benefit. Like the fact that I have a son and understand how to practice these teachings with my son helps me to help you guys. So as you guys have children and you're like, I'm not sure how to deal with my child. You know, they want to do this or they want to do that. I'm like, oh, I had to deal with that same thing with my son. Here's the things that worked for me. Maybe it'll work for you too. So while some people might look at having a child as a hindrance, I look at it as an opportunity to gain more wisdom. That through having a child 
it actually required me to go deeper into the teachings and apply the teachings in a way that someone who doesn't have children wouldn't ever experience. Now, someone who doesn't have any children, the mind doesn't have the opportunity to have attachment to a child because they don't have a child. But their mind also doesn't have the opportunity to gain the wisdom of how to apply these teachings with a child. And it doesn't mean that one is better than the other, right? Because someone who doesn't have a child, yeah, that's just one less thing for them to have to focus on. But someone to me who does have a child who ultimately attains enlightenment, I feel is going to actually have deeper wisdom because they would have had to learn how to navigate that relationship with their child through these teachings, which is going to produce a lot more wisdom. So don't look at it as you're hindered by having been a mother, but just look at it as one more thing that you're going to have to deeply learn and deeply understand in order to apply these teachings and ultimately get to enlightenment. Yes, I've often reflected before um, learning of Gautama Buddha's teaching and when I first uh, came across your teaching, I actually had always said to myself experientially that my children would be my greatest teachers in life. So I wholeheartedly agree with you that um, having children and the decision to uh, raise a child, whether biolo biologically or not, I think that it's a significant um, lesson um, to observe and to uh, chip away at some of the teachings, the core teachings, in fact. So thank you for that reminder. Yeah, we all have unique experiences in this life. You know, some of us grew up very close to our parents, and that's attachment that we have to get rid of. Others, maybe their parents died when they were really young, and they never got a chance to uh, have a relationship with their parents. Now, that could actually cause the mind to have a craving, to have a relationship with their parents. So we all have these different experiences, and that's why as a community, we come together and support, encourage, motivate each other, and we all have different perspectives about how we can navigate this path. So if you have children or don't have children or you're close with your parents or you're not close with your parents, this is just the way that your life has progressed and use every opportunity, use every relationship as a way of learning and growing along this path rather than looking at it as potentially a hindrance or an obstacle necessarily look at it as an opportunity that you can turn this into a way for you to learn more on this path. Because the Buddha had a child and his wife also, of course, she was a mother and they all attained enlightenment. The Buddha, his son and his wife during his lifetime, they all attained enlightenment. So having a child can be a very rewarding, very wonderful part of life. It does have certain challenges that come along with it. But as part of that, there also comes opportunity to learn a lot of wisdom that you might not have otherwise learned had you not had children. So there's pros and cons to all sides of these things. There are no more questions. Okay, let's go on to the next piece, which is, again, something we've kind of been hitting on along the way, which is I've shared how this path to enlightenment is really evolving out of this animal consciousness to becoming more and more human, that you can 
move to a better existence as a human being. And you can eliminate this difficulties of existence, this sickness, this aging, this death, this constant discontentedness that is experienced in the unenlightened state. The mind can evolve beyond that. And by seeing more and more of these animal instincts that you're shedding to become more and more human, you can make that more and more possible. Through attaining enlightenment, you're going to end this whole cycle of rebirth through learning to be more and more human so that you can peacefully coexist with other like species, right? Animals can't necessarily coexist with other like species or other animals. This is why cats and dogs fight. This is why hyenas and lions don't get along. This is why, you know, bears eat fish because they can't peacefully coexist together. But as human beings, we can evolve the consciousness and we can train the mind to peacefully coexist with each other if we choose to do that. And ultimately, the wisdom to do that is found in the Buddhist teachings. And as we do, the mind becomes more and more peaceful. We eliminate this whole constant cycle of rebirth, no longer needing to experience these other realms of existence ever again. We've already experienced them. You might not remember it. You might not ever remember it. But there's no need to go back and experience any of these other realms again. You can stay dedicated and diligent into learning these teachings and evolve beyond these animal instincts. The condition of our planet and what we experience in terms of difficulties and issues, in terms of humans fighting with each other, different arguments and fights and rage and uh, racism and rapes and murders and This group is trying to convince this group that they're bad and this group's trying to convince that group that they're bad. All the difficulties that you see when you turn on the news or when you read the newspaper or you read the internet or you look at anything that's happening in the world, it's all coming from craving, anger, and ignorance, the ego and protection of a self. Essentially, we've got a planet full of human beings 7.5 billion people, the vast majority of them are continuing to function like animals. And this is why we see such harm in the world. You can't fix that. You can only fix your own mind. You've got to get to the point where you let go of trying to train all these animals. You can't train all these animals. 7.5 billion Each individual human being, each individual animal, they have to decide for themselves that they would like to evolve past these animal instincts and become more human. As long as somebody's angered, as long as they have ego, as long as they're stealing, as long as they're killing, as long as they're having sexual misconduct, as long as they've got those craving desire attachments to continue to do those things, they're going to continue to experience discontentedness. As long as they've got that anger, hatred, ill will, as long as they're choosing to hold on to it, there's nothing you can do to force somebody else to be peaceful. There's nothing you can do to eradicate somebody else's ignorance or unknowing of true reality. They have to choose for themselves to step into this path to enlightenment, to learn these teachings, to gain the wisdom, 
and to evolve to become more and more human. So when you turn on the TV or when you hear the radio or when you hear friends talking about all the harms and tragedies in the world, you have to just let go and realize that's just human beings functioning like animals. But your goal in this life is to evolve past that and beyond that to become more and more human. It's not until each human decides to walk towards the light and walk away from this darkness that they're going to experience a better existence. And if you've chosen to do that and that's what you're choosing to do as part of this path, outstanding, excellent, wonderful. But there's no part of this path that involves you attempting to force others to do this. You might be able to encourage, you might be able to influence, you might be able to give somebody a gift as a book, you might be able to skillfully talk to your children or your partner or people that are close to you like this, but on a certain level, there are certain people that are close to you that are just aren't going to be interested. And if you've mentioned something to them here or there and they're not interested, you've got to let go. And you've got to realize that this path is all about your own independent journey. That if others choose to not practice these teachings, then that's their choice. They will be reborn continuously through these different realms. Eventually, everybody will end up in a human existence. And eventually, as we all learn and practice these teachings better and better, and the world does learn more and more of these teachings, they might come back into a human existence at a time when the world is better prepared to help them to learn and practice these teachings. But if they're choosing not to learn and practice, don't make it your mission to try to convince other people to learn and practice these teachings because it just doesn't work that way. That's not the way any of this path is going to work. And it's your own craving, desire, attachment, wanting other people to learn and practice that's actually going to hinder you from attaining enlightenment. So by you letting go and just focusing on your own path, that is what's going to allow you to get to enlightenment. The more that you crave and desire for others to do the same thing you're doing, that's just your mind craving permanence. And it's going to hold you back from attaining enlightenment. So you have to be comfortable with allowing other animals to be animals. If you see cats and dogs fighting out in the street, you might grab a garden hose or you might say, hey, stop. But ultimately, if those cats and dogs want to fight, they're going to fight. And there's some situations where you just have to acknowledge that you can't do anything to influence the decisions of others they have to come to these teachings on their own like i mentioned we can give books as gifts we can when people say something to you like wow you're so calm and all or wow holly that was such a wise thing that you just said you can say oh that comes from the buddhist teachings and if they're just like oh that's interesting and they just keep moving on in the conversation you have to be comfortable with that there's no part of this path that you should go out and beat a drum and try to convince everybody to get on this path. That would just be our own craving, desire, attachment. So by you staying focused on your own path, your own development of this path, that's enough work right there by itself. So stay focused on that 
shedding these animal instincts and you'll see that the mind will continually evolve closer and closer to being human. So with that, that's everything that I had planned to share with you guys today. I'll take any remaining questions and uh, then we'll kind of finish up our class for today. Hi, David. In chapter 20, you mentioned that it's consciousness and the lack thereof, which is creating the condition of the planet that we have and the issues that face humanity. And that essentially it's by working on our own consciousness and following this path that we can address a lot of the issues facing the planet rather than advocating for societal changes. But I was wondering what role, if any, we have in also advocating for societal changes to benefit humanity. Yeah, there's ability to promote wholesome things in the world. And, you know, what we see a lot of times in the world is we see this group is angry at this group and say they're wrong and this group says they're wrong and there's oftentimes a lot of work and effort put into changing one law or another human laws and you know people feel like if we just get this law on the books that's going to make everything better in the world or if we just legislate this way with our political might that that's going to change the world and make the world better Well, legislation and laws isn't what makes the world better. It's wisdom. It's human beings learning more and more wisdom. You can't legislate the world into being a better place. Doesn't mean we shouldn't have laws. You know, we need a certain amount of laws. But the laws that we create as human beings are imperfect. They're not perfect because they're created by human beings. This natural law of gamma it's perfect because it functions just as a natural law. So while somebody might put a whole lot of time, effort, and energy to address one specific law and get one particular law on the books, the world isn't going to change just because of that one law. Where we can really help the world is by learning and practicing these teachings in our own life as our own independent journey. And then when others take note, of the improvements we're making to our own practice, that's where you will gradually be influential without even trying, without even advocating for anything. Just by you practicing the teachings, your partner, your children, your neighbors, your coworkers are going to observe the calmness, stillness, and the peacefulness in your mind. They're going to see how loving and kind and compassionate you are, and they're going to get interested. And that's how you can influence people without even trying. But by going out there and beating a drum and talking bad about one group or another group and harshly and aggressively trying to advocate for one thing or another, all of these societal laws are always fluctuating. You know, laws become laws for five or 10 years. Then they get written off the books and there's some other law and the people who really need the laws aren't actually following the laws anyway. <laughs> Criminals don't follow laws. It's only the wholesome people who are looking at the laws. But these human laws can be very confusing because they're written by human beings. And there are some places in the world that it's illegal to have a partner who's same sex. There's some places that it's illegal to do things that we know by the natural law of gamma are very wholesome. 
So if we only look at societal laws and we're only interested in influencing and changing societal laws, we're looking at the wrong problem. The problem of the human world isn't going to be solved by legislation. The problems that we experience in this human world are only going to be solved when more and more humans decide to gain the wisdom of the natural laws of existence. That's the only way that this whole world is going to sort itself out. If you understand the Four Noble Truths, that as an individual, you are causing all your own discontentedness. And because you're causing your own discontentedness, you can eliminate it. You can elevate that to a level of humanity and you can see that all the problems in the world are being caused by human beings, whether it's air pollution or climate change or murders or rapes or poverty or famine or lack of education or anything you look around the world that is happening that is unwholesome. All of this is being caused by human beings' decisions. And if you understand that, then you also understand that by human beings making wiser decisions, we can improve the world. But we can only do that on an individual level. We can only do that for our own individual life. It's not until massive, large numbers of people that decide to learn and practice these teachings that as a whole, an entire population's life can improve. So that's why, for example, here in Thailand, these teachings have been here for 800 to 1200 years. And Thailand is known to be a very peaceful place, a very calm place, a very loving place. Sure, there's an occasional murder here and there. Sure, there's some illicit drugs that are trafficked here and there. Uh, sure, there's problems here in Thailand. But as a whole, because these teachings have been deeply embedded into the culture, what you see is you see people practicing these teachings in large scale, and that's why there's such peacefulness here. But that's also achievable in other parts of the world. So whether it's America, the UK, Australia, any other part of the world, Africa, South America, any problems that we're seeing, corrupt politics, you know, you name it, all the way down the line, as more and more beings decide to gain the wisdom of these teachings and then function through the wisdom of these teachings, all of that stuff will clear out. Doesn't matter what's going on over here with societal laws and one law being on the books versus another. That's not going to solve the problem because it's just a law. People have to have the interest and the willingness to practice the teachings. And it's only the wisdom of understanding that all of this discontentedness that is being caused in one's own mind is being caused by their own decisions, that when you gain that wisdom and you start functioning through the wisdom of these teachings, that you then have the motivation and encouragement to shed all this animalistic behaviors and move to a more human behavior. It doesn't matter how many laws we have on the books. While laws are important and people need those things, they're not going to drastically influence the conduct of individuals. If that was the case, we have a gazillion laws in the world now. It's been against the law to murder people for a really long time, but people still murder. It's been against the law to steal for a very long time, but people still steal. 
So making laws isn't going to change society. The only thing that's going to change is when we gain wisdom and human beings change our moral conduct and we change our mental discipline. When we do that, then these laws don't even matter because we're functioning at a much higher level of laws. Societal laws are like down here, very low. The natural laws of existence are much higher degree of practice. If you practice the natural laws of existence as the Buddha taught, you'll never run into any problems with the law whatsoever, the, the human law, because you're practicing a much higher level of laws. So any kind of laws that we might advocate for, you can do that stuff if you'd like to, but creating one law or another isn't going to change the world because we have plenty of laws and the world is still in the condition it's in. Why is it in this condition? Because human beings are lacking the wisdom to understand that they're causing their own problems and there's a way out of this and it's shedding these animal instincts and evolving the consciousness to be more and more enlightened, more and more human. And when we do, the world will sort itself out. But we're causing all these problems. We're causing this mess, but we can also improve it too. You mentioned that that health in our minds is reflected in the health of the planet and I'm sure the peace in our minds is reflected in the peace or lack thereof across the planet and that really <clears throat> that really highlights how important and that there is nothing more important that we can be doing right now than practicing. Yeah exactly you know why do we have all this massive pollution all over the world with trash and debris and all of this well, it's because of the human mind. It's because we're lacking the wisdom that for many generations, we didn't realize that we were causing harm to our environment. And we created all these chemicals and substances and products that are polluting the world. And we didn't realize the detriment that we were getting ourselves into over the last several decades. And now, even though there's lots of people that understand that we are causing harm to the world, it's gradual that more and more people are going to understand that. And it's not going to be a quick fix. And the more that we want to go out into the world and change the world, the more your mind's going to be discontent because you can't change the world. You can only change your own practice. You can only change your own mind. But where we get trapped is thinking that it's up to us to go out and change everybody else and people get so busy trying to change everyone else that they're not focused on their own practice and what the buddhist teachings do for us is focus us to where the real problem is which is our own practice and when we focus on that that's where you get the real results so despite everything else that's going on in the world you can actually have a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, having escaped and eliminated all this discontentedness so your mind can be unaffected by what else is going on in the world. And then you might choose to help the world, but you can't do that until you've actually improved your own mind and your own life practice first. We have a question from David D. on YouTube. I believe you've hinted at the answer to this, but he asked, if you're born in the heavenly realm, can you die? Heavenly beings do die. Uh, they have a much longer lifespan than humans. 
but they're still in the cycle of rebirth. So beings that are in the heavenly realm that die, they're going to be reborn if they're not yet enlightened. So beings in the heavenly realm, they can attain enlightenment and no longer be reborn, or they can die and be reborn into any of the other realms. The idea isn't to be reborn into heaven. If you happen to be reborn in heaven, the goal would be to also attain enlightenment from there because that's possible for you to do. Then that will get you out of the whole cycle of rebirth. But unfortunately, once people are in heaven, they end up experiencing so much pleasure that they oftentimes aren't motivated to do so. Thank you, David. That's all the questions that we have for today. And we've had a lot of questions and it really points out how interesting this topic is to everyone listening. But I'm sure you would also probably advise us to stay focused on our path and our meditation and practice rather than some of these ideas. Yeah, so as you see, the way that I present the five realms of existence is rather than just present it, and surely not using guilt, shame, or fear, but rather than just present the five realms of existence and explain to you what it is, I'm showing you a way to use these five realms as a way to motivate you into attaining enlightenment. Because uh, not me trying to motivate you, but for you to motivate yourself. Because you have to have your own individual motivation. Whereas if you just purely understood the five realms and, okay, those are the five realms, okay, great, fine. But if you understand that your human existence is based on countless animal existences and you understand this path to enlightenment is about shedding those animal instincts, now you've got something really tangible that you can use that can benefit you rather than just learn about what the five realms are. Let's use this knowledge and this wisdom of the five realms of how we can use it to our advantage to produce situations in this life that is more conducive to attaining enlightenment. So that's why I choose to share the five realms of existence in the way that I choose to share them as a way that you can use this information about the five realms to then encourage yourself to motivate yourself and then when you get into the Pali Canon and English study group and we get into those teachings you'll see much more clearly how what you've already been learning as part of the path to enlightenment including the five precepts and everything else you'll see a much more detailed level of understanding of how the Buddha is connecting things like harsh speech which wouldn't be right speech. He's connecting that to the realms of existence or the five precepts to the realms of existence. So here in this program, I kind of teach it like this. And then in the next program, that's where we'll get into this in more detail. But even in that program, the people who are in that program will tell you, I'm typically reminding you guys, okay, here's the five realms of existence. Here's how these teachings will show you how beings are being reborn in and out of these realms, but I'm always bringing it back to what's the real goal. The real goal is to attain enlightenment in this life, eliminate discontentedness, escape the cycle of rebirth so that you never have to experience those other realms ever again. So that's the ultimate goal. The goal here isn't to see our past lives and figure out which realm we're going to be reborn into after this life and all those other kind of things. 
for some reason that has a certain amount of sex appeal to it, I think. But the real goal is let's get rid of this discontentedness. And to do that, you need to eliminate any kind of craving, desire, attachment you have to seeing past lives and to having and experiencing any kind of future rebirth. So that's the real goal is just stay focused on that core central path. And in doing so, you'll see the condition of the mind gradually improve and you'll get to experience enlightenment and enjoy the rest of this life with a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. That's the real goal. So next week on Sunday, we're going to be in chapter 21, which is all about the planet. And I was looking here in the book just to tell you guys the title of the chapter is it's titled Do No Harm. What is the future of our planet? This is a chapter that I wrote to help you understand that as a conscious individual moving towards enlightenment, not only do we need to be conscious about the choices we make for our own life, but we need to be conscious of the choices we make for the planet. Now, some people, they look at this whole topic of climate change as being a political discussion, and it's a political topic. For me, it's not a political topic whatsoever. It's just facing true reality. The reality is, is that this earth is our home. This earth is our environment. Whether we attain enlightenment in this life or not, this is our home for the rest of this life. And if we come back to future lives, it's going to be our home for future lives as well. So it's important that you understand that when we talk about this or when you read that chapter, it's not a political issue for me. It's not about uh, whether climate change is real or it's not. You know, if you've lived on this planet for any length of time, then you've seen the evidence that this planet is being significantly affected by human decisions. And what this chapter is meant to do is to help you kind of align your conscious decisions of your own life and eliminating this discontentedness as conscious decisions to ensure that we're creating an environment in which is conducive to us habitating in this environment for the rest of our lives and for future lives if we end up needing to come back and being reborn. So we're going to talk about this next week and it's actually going to be more of kind of like a group discussion as opposed to me kind of teaching you necessarily anything. I'll have very little amount to teach you, but then we're going to turn it into a group discussion where we talk about various aspects of how we as conscious individuals, as us being interested in awakening the mind to enlightenment, what are we able to do in making our own individual personal choices to contribute to a better environment for ourselves and for others after us and for any potential rebirths if you happen to be reborn. So as you read this, understand that it's not political to me. It's just what's the true reality. The true reality is, is this is our planet. We live here. We breathe here. We eat here. And it doesn't make sense to poop in your own backyard, right? It doesn't make sense to do that. So let's make sure we're making good, wise, conscious choices about how we interact with this environment so that it can serve us well. So on Wednesday, we're going to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation as part of our class. And what I'm thinking of is since we've kind of done a lot of sessions now 
of just pure breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation, I'm thinking about kind of using it as a refresher and kind of making sure I teach a bit for a good 20 or 30 minutes about meditation and kind of refreshing your memory about all the aspects of meditation. Because there's been certain students who have joined us now towards the end of this program that never got a chance to learn when I taught all the ins and outs of meditation. So I'm thinking about doing that on Wednesday with breathing mindfulness meditation and then also doing it on the next Wednesday with loving kindness meditation because it'll be a good refresher for those of you guys that have been in the program for a while, but it'll be new content for anyone who's just recently joined our program. So that's what I'm looking to do on the next two Wednesdays is kind of refresh your memory and really kind of bolster and support and kind of give you even more solid foundation in your meditation practice. So any questions and any discussion that you'd like to have about meditation, be sure to either attend those classes live or uh, watch them on the replay. And then on Sunday, we'll be talking about doing no harm to our planet. So thank you all for joining. If you have any questions, feel free to ask those in class, post them in our Facebook group, send me a private message or schedule a personal guidance session. We'll see you in a future class. Have a lovely rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.